Thanks, Tessa. Man, there's nothing more beautiful than listening to God's Word. My name's Evan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Rimrock Downtown. Uh, my wife and I and our two kids took a hiatus for a little R&R the last month. We just got back a couple days ago, and the more I talk to people, the more I hear them saying how cold it's been. I really don't get why you guys are complaining so much. It's quite beautiful out, right? 60 degrees yesterday, 50 today. What's the deal? February's in South Dakota can be brutal, right? We got a uh, snowstorm on the way, but spring is coming close. So we're in week five of a series uh, entitled Responding to Circumstances. And what we've been doing in this series is examining what it looks like for a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a person who has placed their life into the hands of the God of the Bible to react to circumstances that this life brings. Regardless of what a person believes, they will be attacked by other people. They will face discouragement and disappointment. They will be unsatisfied, and they will feel guilt. However, what a person believes about God and life will determine how they handle their difficult circumstances. And how one handles their circumstances utterly shapes a person's life. So this is very applicable. You know, tonight we're going to be looking at what one does when they are face-to-face with their guilt from their own poor choices. You know, before we get into what I have to say, come with me before God, just asking him to give us what we need. God, you are the almighty maker of heaven and earth, and we just humbly approach you asking for your goodness, asking for your wisdom to be poured upon us over the next half an hour. Speak to us individually, giving us what we need in order to love you better, love others around us better, and to live this life the way you desire us to do. We trust you and you alone. Amen. So the last few weeks, as well as tonight, we're going to use David as and the way he lived his life and the way he responded to him as a template to kind of approach this for us. You know, David was described as a man after God's own heart. You know, we see that he was a man that has amazing amounts of trust in God and was willing to follow him far beyond what was comfortable. We see that his life was molded by his love and faith for God. But he's also a man that gave in to his own struggle with sexual temptation and committed an unthinkable act. Let's read a little bit in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's the general, with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to fetch her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after a period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. You know, we see David commit a really unfortunate, make a really unfortunate decision and commit, you know, a very unkind, unloving, ungodly thing. 
But he doesn't stop here. Once he finds out that she's pregnant, he has Uriah come back from the front lines and he tries to convince her to sleep with his wife. But he is so devoted to the king and God and the men that are out in the battlefield that he will not leave the king's house until he's able to go back to battle. David even tries to get him, he does get him drunk in order to seduce him to go back to his wife, but he will not do it. So when David fails at trying to cover up his own sin, he goes one step further. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men in the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David fell among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. So in this passage, we see that David raped Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. It does not get much worse than this. You know, we can already apply this to our lives, believe it or not. Stories like this show us that no matter how much you f trust God and his goodness, no matter how deep your faith is or how, you long, how long you've been a follower of Jesus, temptations still abound. For you and me, temptations are custom built to lure us away from what is good. They hit each of us at our core desire, at the place in which we desire deep and continual satisfaction. Even though you may know that only God can satisfy you, your temptations can still win the battle of the day. Like David, we can find ourselves in places that we never imagined we would be. But God will never leave us there. Let's go back to David. Instead of allowing David to continue to live life as if he had done nothing wrong or simply justly punish him according to the law that he gave to Moses, which would mean David would die, God sends his prophet so that David would know in an undeniable way that God knows what he did. You know, it starts with, Nathan comes, he starts with a parable. He's telling David about a man who was poor and a man who was rich. And the man who was poor had one sheep and the man who was rich had many. When the rich man had a visitor come to him, he stole the poor man's sheep in order to feed to his guest. And out of this story, David condemns himself. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, a man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's, and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. You know, God does the same thing for us. Whether it is through consequences from our actions, which we all have stories about that, or conviction from the spirit, whether it's from our conscience those thoughts and those feelings that will not go away. Through the Bible itself, you read something, you're like, wow, that just struck me to the core. Or other people 
who say stuff to you that you did not expect that speak directly into your life, we are brought to the same realization as David that we have done wrong, that we have hurt somebody, or we have done what was scandalous or unethical, or we made a choice out of selfish motivation. Through the moral compass that God gave every single one of us the moment that we were created, we are shown that we have acted in a way that is contrary to God's design. So why? Why does God point out our sin? I believe in this instance, God does it to give us the opportunity to handle our mistakes in the proper way, in the way that the Creator desires us to handle our sin. Let's keep looking at David's story. We see David's response in 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He immediately admits that he has gone against God's plan for mankind. But this is a simple sentence. What we see in Psalms 51 is the deeper thought process and emotional process that David had to go through when he made this statement. So what we're going to do is we're going to examine that psalm. You know, in verse 1 and 2, we see that he turns to the only hope that he has. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he begins by falling at the feet of God, asking him for his mercy. He does not start with his justifications or excuses for his actions. He does not state his case or try to make a plea. He simply throws himself before God, seeking mercy. And he does not ask for a small thing like a lesser penalty. He asks the creator of everything to blot out his sin. This means that he desires God to remove his sin from a record book in much the same way that a parchment scroll was scraped clean or a clay tablet, clay tablet was either washed or broken. He is not asking God to simply overlook his sin. He is asking God to fully remove it and the condemnation that goes with it. You know, verse 7, we see a little bit more of this. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop, hyssop was used in purification rituals for somebody who had been cured of leprosy. It was also used to spread the blood over the doorpost during the Passover in Egypt, the night before Israel left Egypt. By spreading the blood of the lamb, the life of the firstborn was spared from the destroyer that God, sent, that God sent to kill. David is asking God to fully cleanse him of his sin, to pronounce him free of the cancerous rot, the leprosy of his soul, and to pass over his judgment that comes from God when one rebels against a perfect creator. Now what a way to start a prayer. Think about that. Coming before the perfect God of everything after you've done something like that to ask for something like that. How could he do that when on his mind was a heinous act that he had just committed? I believe it was because he understood God's character. If you wouldn't mind going back to verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. 
David knows that God desires to show his rebellious creation steadfast love and abundant mercy. David has heard about it, right? Everything that he, all the stories he grew up hearing time and time again, the whole Pentateuch. And he has most likely seen God do the unthinkable, to pardon the unrighteous, to grant the wicked forgiveness, not because of anything they had done, but solely because of his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. From the beginning of creation, it has been recorded that God desires to redeem the broken from their own foolishness and to free the slaves from their own slavery. You know, this is the same way that we are to handle our own sin. Whenever we go against the plan that God has cre created for us, the way that he has established this world to operate, whether it's big or small, whether you hurt somebody else or you're the only one involved, whether our culture sees it as unethical or wrong, or whether they say it's not that big of a deal, when you feel the conviction that you have done what God does not want you to do or you didn't do what God wanted you to do, we are to go face to face with God seeking mercy. We are not called to try to run and hide from him like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We are not called to come before God with our justifications of why we did what we did, and we know we have them. Rather, we are called to humbly fall at the feet of the almighty maker of heaven and earth seeking his mercy. And it's so crucial to remember that we do not do this out of fear. The God of the Bible is full of steadfast love for all of his creation. And he is abundant in his mercy towards everyone that humbly seeks him. You know, this is how a person's soul, that eternal part that exists in everyone, is saved from the consequences of rebelling against their creator. Romans 10.13 puts it this way. It's so simple, but here is the gospel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, predestination, I don't think so. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord means that you understand that you are in the wrong, that you have done what you should not have done, so you humbly come before God seeking his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. You recognize that you have no other hope to be saved from the pain and hurt that you brought into this world except for the hand of your creator. And David understood this 700 years before Jesus even showed up. Verses 15, 16 and 17 of Psalms 51. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give you burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, he was taught and raised with sacrifices continually happening. Okay? And just in the same way that we have been taught, you should go to church, you should tithe, you should do all these things. But he understood in the same way that we should understand that that is not how we are saved. That has nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation comes from a broken and a contrite heart. A remorseful or a repentant heart mind and emotion, just everything that you are, crying out to God saying, I need you, I have nothing else. Once you are eternally saved, nothing can take this away. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 8. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, including your sin. No matter how bad, nothing can separate you from the redeeming love of your Creator because you have been fully forgiven for every sin, past, present, and all the ones that we will do in the days to come already forgiven. So nothing can take this away once you have gone before God seeking that redemption. But I believe that God still desires for us to bring our sins before him. By openly coming to God with your brokenness, it does two things for us, at least two. It keeps us humble and it brings about change. So we'll focus on the humble first. When we are willing to confess our sins to God, it reminds us of how broken we are and how much we need Him. It pulls us away from our pride, our tendency to overlook that we need help, which is so common, and brings us back to a broken and contrite heart. In the psalm, we see David using a specific technique to keep him dependent on God's mercy. He admits the gravity of his sin. So let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5. For I know my transgressions, another word for sin, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I ha have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. In verse 3, he admits that he feels extremely guilty for what he has done. He states that his sin weighs heavy on his mind and his emotions, which means that he acknowledges its severity. No justifications. He just says, I know I messed up in a major way. In verse 4, he openly acknowledges that his sin is ultimately against God and God only. Even though Bathsheba was violated and Uriah murdered, David realizes that at the foundation of his actions, he was rebelling against his perfect creator. I believe that David was laying down his power as a king, through which he could have excused himself of his actions. But by doing this, he's accepting the rightful discipline from God. He understands that no matter how powerful or honorable a person is, when they sin, they deserve judgment from God. In verse 5, he declares that from his birth, he has been re in rebellion from his creator. This one is crucial. The idea of a sinful nature. That he was born with a sinful nature that naturally goes against God's plans for his life. His selfish interactions with Bathsheba and Uriah was not a one-time incident. Rather, it is an action that stemmed from his broken nature. You know, for us, we are not called in any way, shape, or form in the Bible to follow a formula in our pursuit of God. But when we admit our guilt to God, acknowledge that we are wrong in what we did, and declare that we have been born with the tendency to go against God, then it helps keep us humble. It reminds us of our need to depend on God.
It brings us back to what we already know, that without God, we are lost and broken. But what's incredible, out of this humility comes significant change. From our broken and contrite heart, God then brings genuine change in our lives. You know, David not only asked God to blot out his sin, he also asked God to change him so that he won't continue to behave in this way. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. So heart and spirit for the Israelites back in 700 BC was their mind their character, their inclinations or dispositions, that part of who we are that causes us to do what we do. And to clean it is to purify it or to make it flawless. So to have your motivation, your disposition to be flawless. And when he says right spirit, right is another word for steadfast or firm, something that cannot be shaken. David desires that God transforms his mind and his emotions so that he desires to do what is right without wavering. Instead of putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone, David wants the bone itself to be fixed. You know, and this is exactly what God does for us when we humbly seek him, desiring his mercy. The moment that we first cry out to God for his love and mercy, we are saved and given his spirit. God himself comes and resides within our minds and our emotions. From this position, he continually transforms us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as, through reflect, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So that is his job, that is his role in our life, is to transform us, to renew us, to make us more like God had originally created us to be. And when we humbly bring our sin to God, the Spirit has even more power to genuinely change our hearts. By being transparent with our Creator, we open ourselves up to the transformative power of God. And it's important for us to understand how illogical this is. When we go against God's plan and bring selfishness, pain, and destruction into our lives and the lives of others, we have the ability to be made better because of it if we bring it before God. You know, I can't teach this topic without laying out at least one of my deep, dark secrets, right? Interesting topic to give an example on, but I figured, you know, God is good. So when I was 19, summer after I graduated, I was out partying with some friends, hopped into a friend's parents, fairly new, if not new, suburban, ended up rolling it, totaled it out. Was arrested, got a DUI, the whole deal. I went to college like two weeks later, um, seven, eight hours away up by Fargo, North Dakota. And I had to come back every two weeks to go before a new judge because I wanted a lesser penalty. And one of the times that I had to come back, I had to ride a Greyhound bus. And, you know, instead of seven hours, it was like 25 or something ridiculous. But what happened in that time was I started reading a book that a friend had given me that laid out the unending, ir radical and illogical love of God. And through that, from my place of brokenness and humiliation, God brought a truth 
into my life that has utterly changed the last 16 years. That no matter what I do, how low I fall, and I fell lower and lower even after that, God's love does not waver. His view of me as his son does not change. He is always longing to interact in my life to bring about good for me. You know, Paul puts it like this in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And we're all called according to his purpose. It's just a matter of do we love God? Do we seek him? But all things. And it's easy to gloss over this verse, assuming that he is simply talking about normal things in our life, like where we work or our talents or our family, that God can use this to bring about good. But all things includes tragedies. And it includes our own failures. You know, this doesn't mean that there's no consequences for our actions. David had a hard road ahead of him. If you read chapter 13 on in 2 Samuel, you'll see how bad it gets for him because of what he chose to do. And I still had to pay the debts for my foolishness. However, God is waiting, longing to restore our mental and emotional state back to people who know they are redeemed. It means that guilt is gone because God has forgiven you completely. Yes, I made a mistake, but I am fully loved by God and he is working in my life to renew me. I don't have to fear that I'm going to continually make these mistakes because God is within me transforming me. People who understand that they are privileged sons and daughters of the Most High are in such a better spot. To gain this redemption, all we have to do is humbly come before God. It's really as simple as that. You know, the last four weeks and tonight and next week, we're taking communion. The reason we're doing it so regularly is not for it to become repetitive, but rather for it to become ingrained as just a beautiful way to worship God. And the idea of communion is that it is a physical demonstration of what Jesus did with his body and his blood, the way that he sacrificed it for us. And there's so much symbolism that is, goes along with this. But tonight, just due to what we have looked at, I encourage you, if you have any sin that's just like weighing upon you, like poor choices that just have been rolling around your mind, while you take communion, bring that before God. If nothing's on your mind, then I encourage you to praise God for the way that he has forgiven you for everything that you have done against him and his plan. You know, the musicians are going to come up first, give them a chance to kind of get their communion, if they can hear me and see me. And then once they're done, um, please follow after it. <laughs>